This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Slumber parties are a childhood staple for young girls. For 12-year-old Polly Class, that Friday lunch hour would be the planning period for a sleepover with her two friends, the perfect way to end a long week of school. As that school day ended at Petaluma Junior High, the trio of seventh graders headed to the class family home. The get-together bore all the hallmarks of a middle school slumber party. The girls jammed to music, played board games, and even planned their Halloween costumes for later that month. The night progressed as any other sleepover would. As the girls got tired and readied themselves for bed, Polly went to grab sleeping bags for her friends. Little did they know, what stood in the hallway would mark the beginning of a nightmare. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. As 12-year-old Polly opened her bedroom door, a man armed with a knife approached the girls from the hallway. He ordered the girls not to scream and threatened to cut their throats. The stranger proceeded to bind the girls with cloth and cords and placed pillowcases over their heads. Polly began to cry, prompting the man to reassure the girls that this was a robbery and that he would not harm them. The man then picked up Polly and ordered her friends to count to 1,000 and that when they were done, Polly would be back. But Polly would never return to her childhood home. The night of October 1st, 1993, began a 60-day kidnapping mystery that captivated the nation and would forever change the criminal justice system in America. Today, I'm joined by Eddie Fryer, retired FBI agent and lead investigator of the Polly Class kidnapping and murder case. My good friend, um, yes. this is such an important case that impacted a lot of us growing up in California, especially those of us who are from the Bay Area, and Polly Class was my age. So to hear the story from your perspective, lead FBI investigator at the time, you were the senior resident agent mm-hmm. of the Santa Rosa FBI office at the time, your perspective is unparalleled, and you played that crucial part in solving what was uh, one of the most horrendous murders and kidnappings in California history. So, Eddie Fryer, tell us what happened on the night of October 1st, 1993. Well, it was um, kind of a typical day uh, that, that October. as a warm, warm October. Um, I was actually off that day. I was uh, abalone abalone diving up on the coast with some friends and came home that Friday, <clears throat> cooked an abalone dinner for my family and 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 went to bed ready to enjoy the weekend when uh, right around midnight, <clears throat> I received a call from our 
San Francisco FBI, FBI office who had gotten a, a bolo, a, 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 a telegram sort of thing, notifying Bay Area law enforcement agencies that there was a kidnapping in Petaluma. And so they, they called me and said, hey, this is in your territory. Uh, <clears throat> we think there's a kidnapping going on in Petaluma. Here's some contact information. And uh, um, so that's how I was first notified of the kidnapping. And so um, I got up. I called my friend who was an agent in Petaluma, Tom Waffenier. Told him I'd be down there in about 30 minutes to pick him up. And we would head, head over to the neighborhood where the kidnapping occurred. So I arrived uh, about uh, a little after midnight. Uh, probably about an hour and a half, hour, 45 minutes after the kidnapping to the scene, to Polly's house there in, in Petaluma. And it's quite chaotic when we arrived. Uh, they had checkpoints set up. They had a perimeter set up. Police officers were doing uh, neighborhood canvases. And once we checked in with one of the one of the perimeter officers, we went to the house and and I met up with the lead detective at the time, and that was Sergeant Vale Bello. And I had known Vale uh, before this, <clears throat> and he gave me a very uh, detailed and concise uh, brief of what happened. You know, that's the first thing you have to do is, hey, what do you have? What's being done? What needs to be done? Those are the three questions every investigator has to uh, answer when they arrive on, see, on scene. And he gave me a great brief on uh, the details of the kidnapping, what they knew at that time, uh, what was being done, and what needs to be done. And I can tell you, Emily, that 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 conversation with Sergeant Vale Bello, those early conversations he and I had, set the entire tone of this investigation, which led to the eventually to the resolution of this of this case. And, and so, we, what we did Vale tell you at that time? Like, what was yeah. the tell us that level of detail that he shared with you? Yeah, he um, he said about ten thirty. Um, Polly was having was home with uh, two of her friends having a slumber party. Um, Mom was home uh, with a younger daughter. They were sleeping in a bedroom right next door. And the girls, the two girls, uh, Kate and Jillian, uh, who are Polly's friends, said that mm, Polly opened the door to go to the living room and retrieve some pillows and blankets. And standing in the doorway was, was a stranger. And they described him pretty well, uh, a bearded man standing there with a knife. And he entered the room and he started tying up the girls. He asked some odd questions. He wanted to know who was who lived there. Uh, he asked if there were any valuables in the room. He asked who else was in the house as he was tying up the three girls. When he asked who was living there, Paula, uh, Polly spoke up and said, I do. That's the girl he took. And that's pretty key and in, in, in the analysis of this investigation as to what we were dealing with. Uh, he tied up the girls. Uh, he told the girls to count to a thousand and he left the room with Polly. Um, uh, the entire crime took about probably less than 10 minutes. And, um, and the girls know that he went out the front door because the door had kind of a, a, a unique sound to it. And they heard that. Well, they, they uh, untied themselves pretty quickly, uh, woke uh, uh, Polly's mother, Eve, up, and she called 911. And the police arrived within literally minutes after the kidnapping. And 
after they did their initial assessment, they, that's when they put out the bolo, and that's how we got notified through the FBI channels. And so Vail was telling me that those are the basic facts. They were doing a neighborhood canvas, knocking on doors, which is very standard in these kinds of situations. They were processing the house in terms of collecting evidence, uh, dusting for prints. They were doing initial interviews of, of Eve, the two girls, and and Vail, uh, Vail kind of concluded by saying, we can use all help, any help we, uh, we can get. And I said, okay, um, if you're willing to call this a kidnapping, possibly a stranger kidnapping, I'm willing to do that for you. Uh, that, and that would activate a lot of resources with the FBI. And I, I'll tell you why, Emily, because the Bay Area up, at, uh, up until this point in time had endured a cluster of unsolved child abduction cases. Amber Schwartz Garcia, Eileen Mishaloff, Kevin Collins, uh, Michaela Garrett. These were all young children who just vanished from the face of the earth without a clue. Um, and, and, and most of those cases are still unsolved today. Um, and, and there was a lot of anxiety, if you will, in terms of, about these kinds of cases. And we just needed to solve one. We, we needed to pull uh, every resource possible uh, to solve one of these cases. And so I made the call pretty early. I made the call down to San Francisco FBI. We activated our evidence response team based upon um, this being possibly a stranger abduction case. And, and that, that, that really activated um, not only the evidence response team, but just about every resource uh, the FBI has available to them at, at that time. So that, that, started, that started my involvement was uh, the night of the kidnapping. And, and um, our partnership with Petaluma PD, I think, was a model in terms of working together with the federal government and local, local agencies. And um, that kicked off a, a 65-day investigation. And I want to set the scene for a moment for listeners because Petaluma is an idyllic, beautiful town. I've spent a lot of time there. Obviously, mm -hmm. you have yeah. um, under those tragic circumstances. But it has, you know, the architecture downtown. It, it has Victorian homes. Uh, it has a main street. It has a quaint theater. It is surrounded by dairy farms. And then it gets to the ocean. You mentioned being abalone fishing that night up in Mendocino County. Um, it's a beautiful, idyllic area. And Petaluma feels very small, even though it's only, um, what, a couple dozen miles from the city of San Francisco. People there lived very safely. To your point back then, we never locked our doors growing up. I grew up in El Cerrito, California, right across the the pond there from Petaluma, we never right. locked our doors. And to this day, my dad said that cluster of kidnappings and the polyclass kidnapping and murder, we locked our doors after that because the notion at the time in 1993 that this poor girl was plucked from her bedroom while her mom was home was such a foreign concept, um, especially to Petaluma and that neighboring community. You mentioned activating the emergency response team from, FB, from the FBI in San Francisco. And remind me, but it's my understanding that the Unabomber had actually an impact on this case. Can you explain why? Sure. So um, the FBI was just um, 
launching a new case management system. Uh, back then, it was called Rapid Start. It's called Orion today. And Rapid Start is a case management system that uh, is designed to ha handle an investigation with a large volume of leads and information, um, maybe multiple crime scenes. That The FBI San Francisco was launching a new phase in the Unabomber case, and they were bringing out and they brought out the Rapid Start team from, from Washington to set up in San Francisco that very week um, um, when this kidnapping occurred. And again, it was a brand new concept. Um, it was going to be tried out for the Unabomber case. And I, re I received the call, it must have been Saturday, um, from San Francisco. And they said, uh, Eddie, hey, we have this case management system. It sounds like you're getting a lot of leads up there. Do you want the Rapid Start team up there? And I said, Sure. What is it? <laughs> and um, I'll, I'll tell you, Emily, by by Sunday, certainly by Monday morning, they had the rapid start system up in Petaluma. They brought it all up from uh, San Francisco. They had it up and running in Petaluma. It's a it's a again, a, a they digitize all the incoming information that comes in, all the leads and they we track the leads and we can assign the leads and we can prioritize the leads based upon. The information, it was the, really the first test of this new system. And boy, did we test it because before this thing was over, I don't know if it's been chronicled in any other investigation, but we, in 60 days, we received in excess of 60,000 tips and leads, of which we were uh, able to generate over 12,000 actionable leads. You can't manage a case like that with butcher butcher paper on the wall the old way the old-fashioned way it had to be handled by some some system and and it was the rapid start system that allowed us to manage the an extraordinary amount of, of information that was coming in to us we're going to take a quick break more from our guest after this does monday at the office feel like a storm not with microsoft copilot that feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. It remains to this day uh, one of the largest or the largest scale kidnapping investigations in California state history. And in part, for exactly yes. the reason you articulated, that the circumstances were such a perfect set of circumstances to enable resources to be deployed immediately for yes. this kidnapping of this young girl out of her bedroom in a small town just north of San Francisco so that immediately federal resources and this cutting-edge technology could be utilized. So picture everyone, you know, this, this again, small town in the middle of an agricultural county uh, that had the, the hand of God, frankly, that descended upon it in the realm of investigatory tools and investigative actionable resources. And Eddie, you were at the helm. So describe now... How did the investigation unfold, and what did that sure. look like um, sure. beginning day one of the ensuing 65? Sure. We, uh, I mentioned it that we, we formed a partnership with Petaluma PD. Now, Petaluma PD at the time only had about 60, 62 officers, um, and most of those were patrol officers. So they only had a handful of detectives. So a case like this would have simply overwhelmed an agency of that size and larger agencies for that matter. 
So um, this case exploded uh, within the first 24, 48 hours, in part because this struck at the heart of every family in America. These were 12-year-old girls having a slumber party in their own home under the watchful eye of a parent. How many slumber parties happen in this country on a Friday and Saturday night? Millions. It's a safe, it's a robust, healthy thing to do. And the thought that somebody could walk into your house, Emily, walk into your home and take your daughter, it, it just struck at the heart, the core uh, of, of this country. And, and because of that, uh, you know, the leads were calling, uh, people were calling with uh, leads, the information was coming in. We started uh, doing, um, of course, the, the basic investigation, and that's the neighborhood canvases, interviewing people um, that were close to the family. We had to clear family members. We had to bring them in for, for, for poly, polygraphs, for interviews. And as the days unfolded and, and the leads came in, it was a roller coaster ride. Uh, we would get what would appear to be a really good lead, and that would be what we would call an immediate lead. Mm-hmm. And we would send teams out to conduct interviews and the investigation, maybe execute a search warrant, maybe bring somebody in for a polygraph. And uh, I got to tell you, every day, uh, it didn't matter if I had 50 agents and officers or hundreds, everybody showed up with their game face on. We worked with a sense of urgency. Polly was out there, and, and our goal was to find Polly and, and to bring her back home. Um, and it was a roller coaster ride, you know. I mean, uh, again, we would have good leads, and we would think, okay, this might be the lead that that uh, will take us to Polly, and then it would fizzle out, and then we would uh, chase other leads, and and investigations were going all over the country, for that matter. And through it all, through it all, it was just it was just a tremendous all hands on deck. I had agents showing up after working 10 hours on their own cases. They would show up at Petaluma PD, walk in and say, Eddie, what do you got? And we would hand those agents a, a stack of leads and off they go. Um, and um, and the community, the, the community was really involved. In fact, that's what fueled, I think, our, our investigation in a large part was the community involvement. The, the community of Petaluma, you mentioned it, Emily, it was, it's, it's a small community, you know, 40-some miles north of San Francisco, beautiful little downtown area, shops and restaurants, Victorian-style neighborhoods, again, just like you mentioned. And they stood up and said, no, no, we're, we're, we're not going to walk away from this one. We're not going to forget this one. We're going we're gonna to work this until we find Polly. And so they were very instrumental and keeping the story alive, keeping the leads coming in, and worked in partnership with us to um, to um, cover everything. I think we were just uh, just lucky that we had everybody, uh, you know, 100% involved in this case. My colleagues were great. So your team of hundreds of investigators comprising multiple different agencies at this point, you're fielding what was to become 60,000 leads. And what was the one that got you to hone in on Richard Allen Davis? The lead that got us started on, on the suspect, Richard Allen Davis, um, 
it was a lead that started with a property owner out in Sonoma County in rural um, part of the county. Her name was Dana Jaffe. And Dana Jaffe was out walking her property. And it's kind of a remote, remote property on a mountainside between uh, the town of uh, Santa Rosa and Sonoma. And she has some uh, woodcutters working on a property recently. She thought she'd kind of check out uh, the work that was done. And and walking um, through that area, she came upon a scene that kind of was a little disturbing to her. The scene was basically on a hill, hillside just off her driveway. And scattered on the ground were, were articles of clothing. It included a black sweatshirt. It included some red tights that appeared to you know, be from a young um, child, uh, include a condom, a condom wrapper, uh, some ligature material. And the ground was uh, somewhat disturbed. And, and she said, oh, this is odd. This is on my property. It's inside the gate. And, I, and I've never seen uh, anything like this before. And she put a call into the Sonoma County Sheriff's Office and asked for a deputy to come, to come out. It was just a normal call. Now, this is 60 days into the investigation. And and so the deputy gets this call. It's a suspicious circumstances call. It's almost a, a nothing call. And his name is Mike McManus. And Deputy McManus goes out and meets Dana Jaffe at her property. And she takes him down to this area. Says, "Hey, listen, this is on my property. I'm kind of I'm kind of worried about this, you know." And McManus kind of uh, initially and almost immediately recognizes this as probably maybe some sort of. Um, sexual assault scene, or or maybe some kids were up here. He doesn't know. But then Dana says, "Hey, listen. About two months ago, I had a trespasser on my property, and and your uh, a couple of your deputies came up here and contacted this guy, and and he was in this area. He was just on the driveway, just below the scene where uh, that they're now standing, and so." Um, and they, they were talking, you know, it was two months ago, and, you know, and they thought that it might have been the night of the polyclass kidnapping. Well, McManus, Deputy McManus, does a couple of checks, and sure enough, he finds what they um, call an FI stop by two deputies, and it was the night of the kidnapping out there at Dana Jaffe's, and two deputies, Howard and Rankin, came out and contacted this trespasser that Dana uh, Jaffe uh, mentioned, and um, they uh, they contact, contacted this guy. It was Richard Allen Davis. And they kind of knew that he was up to no good. He's up on a kind of a, a, a driveway that goes up on the side of the mountain. There's no reason to be up there. He kind of gives them a phony story. But Dana, Dana Javi says, hey, I just want him off the property, you know. And so they escorted him off. Now, again, now we're 60 days later. And... And Dana Jaffe finds this scene, and now there's Deputy McManus standing there with Dana Jaffe. And they're talking about, you know, we talk about connecting the dots a little bit. Boy, I tell you what, uh, Dana Jaffe and Deputy McManus collected, uh, connected the dots. Deputy McManus decided to call uh, Petaluma PD, our command post. Now, Again, I think it's divine intervention here uh, working because normally a deputy would pick pick up this stuff, throw it in the back of his tr- patrol car, and really not do anything with it. It's just found property. But he said he called, and uh, I happened to catch, catch the call um, in, in the command post, and 
the phone was ringing. I was walking out to go to a meeting. I picked up the phone. I said, CP. Normally don't do that because I was busy doing other things. And it's Deputy McManus on the phone. He goes, hey, I'm Deputy McManus. I'm out here. Hey, listen, I, I, I can't take this call. And I gave the phone to Larry Pelton. Larry Pelton was one of our trusted uh, senior detectives from Petaluma PD. He was actually in the bedroom on the night of the kidnapping. And I asked Larry to take the call, and he did. And so um, I went off to my meeting, didn't think much of it. Larry came, comes by in a couple of minutes and says, Eddie, I'm going to go meet this deputy down on Pythian Road. Didn't think much about it even then. And about 30, 40 minutes later, one of our staff people came to my, into my uh, meeting and said, Eddie, Pelton wants to talk to you. And so <clears throat> that's unusual, you know, from a senior detective. So I got on the phone and Pelton says this, Eddie, you better get down here. I go, what do you mean? He said, this might be it. You better get down here. I've told this story a thousand times, Emily, large audiences, small audiences. And every time I get to this point in the story and I recount that conversation with Larry Pelton, as it did that day, the hair goes up in the back of my neck. It just did. I just got a chill. Yeah, I just, you know, and I relive that. And he says, you and Mike Meese better get down. Now, Mike Meese is now my partner uh, from the PD. He says, you and Mike better get down here. And so what he said is, he, uh, we have a trespassing call on the night of the kidnapping. We have a suspect down here uh, in his rap sheet is, is, is certainly the type of a guy that um, would do a crime like this. And, and I've looked at some evidence up here on the hillside. And one of the, one of the ligat- ligatures on the hillside looks identical to the ligatures that were in the bedroom. Mm. So we get down there, uh, Mike Mace and I, and... We meet Pelton, and then he shows us also a picture of this guy that the deputies had stopped on a trespass call two months earlier. And we all instantly knew that we were on the on the lead that we have been waiting for for 60 days. And I told Mike Meese we're up on the hillside uh, up there on Pythian Road, and it was dark and rainy. I, I kind of describe describe it as a scene out of a, uh, out of a Sherlock Holmes movie. <laughs> and uh, I, I said, Mike, this is it. Um, uh, this is going to be a crazy week. And, and um, this is going to get us uh, to, uh, to, a, to a point to where we can resolve this case. And all we had was a picture, a rap sheet, some evidence, and the fact that this guy <clears throat> was out there at midnight on the night of the kidnapping. And let's dig into, for a moment, the night of the kidnapping and what exactly happened on Pythian Road. Um, and if yeah. you could sort of touch on a little bit. So there's a there's a reason why when the 911 call went out, why it activated into federal resources and yet why there were deputies sort of just a few miles away that didn't know about the kidnapping. And there's a reason why those deputies who conducted the FI, um, the field interview report, there's a reason why they had to let Richard Allen Davis go that night. Um, There's a reason why Dana Jaffe's decision played into that part and some more. So can you share with us a little bit about 
what exactly happened that night and the circumstances that led to Richard Allen Davis going free that night. So again, this is the night of the kidnapping. Uh, the encounter out there at Pythian Road was about midnight, <clears throat> just about the time I'm I'm heading heading down to Petaluma. What had happened that night is that Dana Jaffe is a, a chef at a local restaurant, so she was at work, and she had her uh, daughter, her 12-year-old daughter, was up at the house being washed by a babysitter. Her name was Shannon Lynch. Dana Jaffe comes home. She goes through the gate, goes up to the house, doesn't see anything. She and Shannon Lynch, the babysitter, have a brief conversation. Um, Shannon uh, Lynch leaves to go um, down the hill, and she encounters what she describes as a really scary guy, virtually standing in the middle of the driveway, his his white pinto sitting on the side of the road. Um, they have a very brief encounter. He's trying to get her out of the car. He's asking some questions about who lives up at the house, and she's actually petrified. The guy is really scary and spooky, and she races down to the bottom of the hill, um, finds a cell phone. I'm sorry, finds a pay phone and calls back up to Dana Jaffe's house and says, hey, there's a scary guy on your property just inside the gate. You better get out of there. <clears throat> so Dana Jaffe grabs her daughter and, um, and a baseball bat, according to her, gets in their car and drives down the driveway. She sees the car but doesn't see anybody by it, doesn't see uh, Davis by the car. She goes down, calls Sonoma County Sheriff's Office, and they dispatch two deputies. Howard and Rankin, and she takes them back up the hill to find out who this guy is. And, and when they arrive, he's standing there by the car by himself, kind of nonchalantly smoking a cigarette. <clears throat> and um, the two deputies, again, Howard and Rankin, do uh, basically a, a sobriety uh, field check, ask him some, some questions about, you know, why why he was there, what he's doing. He based some phony Excuse me, I was out sightseeing. I got lost. My car got stuck. They pat him down. They checked the car. And they, they held him there. They, 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 they had their senses were kind of pinging that this guy was really up to no good. Um, but it's Friday night. Uh, they have calls backing up on their log. Right now, all they know is that they have a trespasser. It's a kind of a minor offense. And they don't know about the kidnapping because the bolo has already gone out. The reason they don't know about the kidnapping is they're on a different radio channel because they work out of a substation. They, uh, it's called a, a detention. That's the legal term. So they detained him um, upwards to half an hour, almost 40 minutes. And that's usually uh, the extent of, uh, of, of a detention. And they had to either arrest him for something or... Get him out of there. And Dana Javi says, I don't want him arrested. Just get him off my property. Tell him not to come back. Howard and Rankin actually helped him get his car unstuck and escorted him down the road. All the, all the time that these deputies were up there, Polly Class is sitting on the hillside only 30 feet away. And um, they escort uh, Davis off the property. The two deputies head off to their calls. Uh, Davis tells us uh, later that he waited about 30 or 45 minutes and then went back to get Polly. And um, so that's the sequence up there at uh, Pythian Road. And 
it's my understanding that Dana Jaffe declined to um, exert a citizen's arrest, which would have been, it would have triggered the necessity for the deputies to take Richard Allen Davis into custody at that point. That to yeah, your, yeah, just to yeah. flesh out, she said, yeah. I just, just get him off my property. I'm not, she did not want to walk up to him and articulate, I am, I'm arresting you. That was something she was not comfortable doing because of this uh, quite palpable, um, he was a, he's a very scary figure. And that's all, you know, terrified. I mean, it's just a trespasser at this point in time yeah. and, and without any other evidence of any nefarious, you know, acti- activity, um, you know, you're very unlikely to make an arrest in this situation. And, yeah. and her concern was just to get him off the property. She could close the gate. Mm-hmm. And, and you and I have, have actually been there um, <laughs> together, Eddie, a few years ago, you and I were there and for just so listeners understand too, it's a very steep hill. And the road that we're talking about, the driveway, is very narrow. And on one side of it, it's like a drop-off. And and then it's sort of cut into a steep hill. On either side, there's trees everywhere, which, as you stated, it's because 60 days later, as she had workers on her property cutting down trees, that is how they were able to uncover what they learned were was Polly's um, clothing and so at the time, so, so picture, you know, there's, there's, you can't pass another car easily. You have to back up to even let another car go. This is a very dark, uh, seemingly middle of nowhere place that's nestled in these very steep Northern California hills. Um, and at that point, Eddie, from what we know now, you said Polly was sitting 30 feet away, but from what we understand now, was she, had she already been murdered? That's a question that, that has been debated for 30 years. Now, eventually we do arrest Richard Allen Davis and, and and we get him into an interview up at Mendocino County Jail. The first interview didn't go very well, but the second interview is considered the, the confession. It's really not a confession. It's, it's what we would call uh, making omissions. Davis says in his confession – that he, he put Polly up on the hillside, and she's fine. He hasn't he hasn't uh, hurt her. He hasn't touched her. He hasn't had uh, tried to have any sex with her. She's just sitting up there, fine, just thirty feet feet away, while two deputies and two different patrol cars are a few feet away in this thirty forty minute detention. And um, and and when he's escorted off the property by the two deputies. He, again, he waits and he then goes back to get Polly. However, um, and it's my contention and, and it was our contention during the trial, that's not the case. And the primary facts are that where she was, there was a men's large black sweatshirt, a condom, a condom wrapper, her her red tights, ligature material. The ground was visibly disturbed because the leaves were all pushed aside as, as, as there was some sort of you know violent activity. We also found forensic evidence in Polly's hair um, that uh, matched evidence. The same fibers were found in Davis's car, but where in his car? On the, his front passenger floorboard. So if her hair, her head hair, came in contact with the front passenger floorboard, that's where that exchange probably occurred. Nobody rides with their head on the floorboard of the car. 
her clothing that we recovered eventually up in Cloverdale, her, her, her skirt was upside down and inverted. Her samba top, which is a little shirt that has a little knot tie in front of it, that was untied. Um, her body was clearly in what we call a defensive position. Um, and, and when when you look at all that evidence and you, and you look at why, why would he be up on, on that dark, uh, lonely driveway in the middle of the night with a 12-year-old girl that he just kidnapped out of a bedroom? Uh, there's no other reason other than to assault her. We feel that the, the assault occurred up there. And, and the fact that she could not come down the hillside and announce herself in front of those deputies was because she couldn't. And uh, he, he, he went back to get polyclass, but he went, get, went back to get the body after assaulting her up there on the hillside. He says no. He says that he, she was just fine. And then when he went back to get her, he we drove around for a while and then, and then uh, ended up in Cloverdale. So 60 days later, um, cut to Dana Jaffe, who, who finds these things on her property. And um, the detective says, Eddie, you know, come down here. Um, now tell us and set the scene for who Richard Allen Davis was, uh, the surveillance that began for him, and essentially uh, you closing in on this convicted murderer. Sure, sure. Well, everything, everything kind of you know, um, stopped, and we focused on Richard Allen Davis because we just basically the u- unanimous feeling was that this was our guy. So we learned that um, he was on parole. Um, he was a, a convicted felon. He spent two eight-year uh, stints in state prison for sexual assault, kidnapping, Um so is clearly the kind of offender uh, <clears throat> that could do a crime like this. We learned from his parole uh, records that um, he uh, was staying up in uh, a town called Ukiah, California, with his sister, the Schwarms. And um, so we started to focus on, on that area and uh, put put the, the place under surveillance. We've... Uh, uh, saw him coming and going from the Shorns residence, so we, we knew he was up there. And our plan was to get search warrants, execute those search warrants, uh, arrest him for a parole violation because we uh, did have a parole violation on him, and uh, get him in custody and and conduct an interview. Now, the interesting part of that was when we identified Richard Allen Davis as, as our primary su- suspect, uh, the FBI threw in even more resources. They were flying out experts from Quantico. They were flying out behavioral science people. They were flying out evidence recovery people. Um, And we had a big meeting at Petaluma PD. And it was the belief of of the FBI and my colleagues in the Bureau that we should hold off on the arrest, surveil him for a period of time. He might lead us by a crime scene or... um, you know, uh, take us to some other place that would would uh, be pertinent to the investigation. And uh, the other side of the argument or the discussion <clears throat> was my police colleagues. And they said, no, we need to get him in custody. Let's interview him. Let's execute our search warrants. Let's get his car and, and 
and and process those scenes for evidence um, to do basic police work. That's what we need to do. And there was a very, uh, what I describe as a robust discussion in the command post. And ultimately, uh, the decision came to me. And uh, um, I decided, no, let's do what the police want to do here. Let's get them in custody. Let's try to get a um, an interview and execute our warrants and other additional evidence was going to be coming in. Can I ask you, Eddie, on that? The reason that you yeah. decided to that you went with the local police request, um, you know, vote, is it is it for honoring those boots on ground that knew the community? Was it was it was it something that dovetailed it? Like to explain your reasoning. Why did you ultimately do what they wanted? Because you're you were an FBI sure. agent. So your background would have been to surveil and wait for more information. So tell us what led to your decision making in that way. Well, it's, it's pretty simple. Uh, it, it's not a federal case. It was never going to be a federal case. We were there uh, supporting the local investigation. We were there supporting the local agency. We were there supporting Petaluma PD. And it was all, uh, it was never going to be charged federally. There were no federal aspects of the case. And uh, and our, our job is to, is to support them and do what they want to do. And I felt very strongly about that, even though – there was a large argument on on the FBI side to do certain things. We really had to honor what the local agency wanted to do because it was their case. Got it. Um, so um, so it was decided to get them in, into custody, and um, and uh, we executed search warrants up there at the Schwarm's house, and and uh, eventually got them in custody and took them down for what we call an interview interrogation at Mendocino County Sheriff's Office where that was done by Mike Meese and Larry Taylor. And the first interview got nowhere. The first interview um, was brief at best because um, he, he uh, Davis was not compelled to talk and had no reason to talk. And once he learned the purpose of the interview, and Mike Meese said, you, you know, we, we want to talk to you about the disappearance of Polly Class, he basically ended the interview, and that was his right to do that under Miranda because it was a Miranda situation. It was in custody and being asked questions about the case. And the uh, interview was over very, very quickly. And for, in, for those listening, evidence. right. And just for those listening, you know, that's, that's what you see on TV. The, you have the right, the right to remain silent. Anything yes. you say can and will be held against you in a court of law. That's exactly yes. what Eddie is talking mm-hmm. about right here. So essentially right. because he was more, because he was in custody, he was then Mirandized, um, and therefore, yep. he wasn't. Can you tell us quickly how many days after the night uh, that you determined, you know, you, that, that all the dots connected, as you said, how many days later did you execute this warrant? So how many days oh, did uh, you? Yeah, uh, yeah two, uh, two days. Two days. Um, right, so two days. Um, later, you know, we not, yeah. Uh, in two days, you know, we had our warrant signed. Um, we had uh, resources in place. Um the execution of the search warrant was done by FBI SWAT team, and I had my evidence recovery team waiting in the wings, and it was a kind of a standard process to execute something like this, especially very high profile, high risk. And um, so we had everything in place, um, and um, we seized this car uh, that was on, on the Schwarm's property that was a little white Pinto that was the same car that was up on Pythian Road. 
And uh, we took that down to Petaluma PD. We had some experts out from Washington just to process the car. Mm-hmm. And so we felt confident, even though we didn't get anything in the, in, in the interview of any note, we were going to get additional evidence. And we also executed a warrant on Davis to get his palm prints and DNA and hair samples. And we were going to submit and, and we did submit that immediately to the FBI lab back in Washington. That's another thing that we early decision that we made was to send all the evidence back to the FBI lab, which was just, uh, you know, the service we got was just it was the top case they were working on at the time. So there was no delay in the review. And um, I tell people shortly, uh, I think it was the next day <clears throat> was my very best after 30 years of the bureau, uh, my best day. Was was the, like the the next day. My worst day was two days later. Mm-hmm. But my best day was when the FBI lab called me and said that they matched Davis's palm print that we took off his records to, to a palm print that we took out of Paulie's bedroom. So it was concrete, mm-hmm. our first concrete evidence that Davis was in the bedroom of Paulie class. And there's no reason to, for him to be in that house other than the night of the kidnapping. And that palm print, uh, the partial palm print, was lifted from, if I remember correctly, the bunk bed. Yes. So sort of I- indicating that he had leaned in to grab or pull Polly physically. It was the yeah, you know, I mm-hmm. mean, uh, yeah, he was, he was in that bedroom moving around uh, quite a bit, and so he would have naturally touched, you know, a lot of things. Absolutely, uh, it was a, a, an odd place. It was on one of the higher rails, so. Yeah, we surmised it was probably leaning on that, you know, to do something, maybe, again, grab something from the bed, maybe another pillowcase or something like that. Yeah. And um, and that was a palm print taken off that bed by the FBI evidence recovery team after the police department had processed the bedroom for palm print. So that was one of the, the key decisions, the early decisions we made to get the the FBI evidence recovery team in there because they had some different technology and different equipment than the PD had. So <clears throat> another, another example of how those perfect circumstances led to the ultimate successful resolution of this case, because right. the FBI had been primed in place to deploy all of these resources. So, so now, um, so he hasn't said anything. You said the first interview yep. was <clears throat> yielded nothing. And then what happened? Well, um, of course, nothing stops on the investigation side. You know, we were we were still doing work up on Pythian Road. We were still now massive uh, searches going on up in Ukiah by the Schwarm's house, uh, processing the car, doing additional interviews. So that work didn't stop. And and so we released uh, to the media um, that um, we matched Davis's palm print in Paulie's bedroom. So that was a very big headline that we purposely released to the media. Sitting down in, a, in Redwood City was a gentleman um, reading the paper that morning. His name was Marvin White. Marvin White operates a welding shop down there, and he often hires people coming out of prison to work at his welding shop as a service you know, to, to, the, to that population to help those people out when they when they're released, and Davis went to work for him when he uh, was released uh, out of prison. Um, and Marvin's reading in the paper that morning that that Davis's palm print 
was taken from Polly's bedroom because I know that guy. He worked for me at my welding shop. Well, he rolls up the paper, he gets in his car from Redwood City, drives all the way up to Mendocino County Sheriff's Office, never been there before, finds the sheriff's office. He, he walks in and says, I'm a friend of Richard Allen Davis. Can I see him? Pretty odd because he wants to help. You know, he wants to urge Davis to cooperate with police because in, in that article, we, we mentioned that he's not cooperating with the investigation. And so uh, the uh, ship's commander comes in to me and says, hey, you know, we got this guy out here that wants to talk to Davis. You know, um, what do you think? I said, well, you know, I mean, I don't see why not. I mean, we'll interview him afterwards and find out who he is and what his purpose is. Yeah, go let him talk. I didn't know he had a newspaper with him. So Davis, uh, they contact Davis. I said, yeah, he. I'll talk to him. I know that guy. So they put Marvin White and Davis together in the visiting room at Mendocino County Jail. Marvin White says, hey, the police have your palm print out of the bedroom. Why aren't you cooperating? That's the first time Davis realizes his palm prints in the bedroom. Interview's over. He gets up, walks away. Doesn't say anything to Marvin White. Richard Allen Davis now realizes his palm prints in the bedroom. He's got to do something. And so he reaches out and says, I want to talk to those two guys again that were in the first interview. Meese and um, um, Taylor, the FBI agent Taylor. So we um, got several legal opinions, whether that would be a violation of, of Miranda uh, it's not because he's reinitiating the contact. That's one of the exceptions mm -hmm. to Miranda because he wants to now talk. And so we reconvened that interview up at Mendocino County Jail. Um, and uh, he's re-Mirandized again, make sure we don't violate his rights. He's there voluntarily. He's not there because of any promise or coercion. And <clears throat> they could barely get through that part of it. And, and Davis crafts a story that, yes, he was in Petaluma that night. Yes, he went into the house. Yes, he kidnapped Polly. And um, it's a quite fascinating story. It's, it's, it's full of uh, omissions and it's full of deception, especially when, it, when Mike Meese presses him on, did, he, did you touch Polly? Did you try to have sex with her? Did you hurt her in any way? And and you can tell through throughout this process, there's a lot of deception going on. But but he admits uh, going in and taking Polly and ending up with her out at Cloverdale, which is now where we eventually recovered the body. And uh, you have been out there and um, tells us that that he kills her out there. So at that point, are the agents aware of the omissions and deceptions? Because at that point, they've gotten, you know, a confession or at least an admission to part of it. Yes. And so uh, what what did they act on then? Oh, clearly, clearly. Um, uh, you can you can analyze how a person's responses based upon what they have been saying. This initial interview was about two hours long. Mm -hmm. And Mike Meese continues to press him on that issue. Did you touch her? Did you try to have sex with her? 
you know, and, and, and rephrases that in several different ways. And each time you can tell that Davis is, is not committed to his responses, is very evasive. Um, he says at one point in time, oh, you'll soon find out, mm-hmm. which is a uh, almost an admission of guilt, that he's just waiting for us to find out, that, uh, find evidence of a sexual assault, and then he can, then he can change the story. But um, um, there was enough evidence to eventually charge him with an attempted loot act on a child, which was one of the special circumstances of this case. But um, um, yeah, I mean, Mike Meese was 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 very forceful in trying to get to the the bottom um, line on that that part of the case. But he did have the omission on the on the abduction and and the homicide. More of the Fox True Crime podcast coming up. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And so how did Richard Allen Davis end up leading you to Polly's body? Yeah. So as this evidence is coming in, we're getting the palm print. Now we're getting an admission of, of guilt um, on the kidnapping and murder. Um, we really wanted Polly. I mean, I stated that early on. Our sole purpose was to find Polly and to bring her home. And so early on in, in, in this interview, Davis indicated that he would take us to the body recovery site in Cloverdale. And at the conclusion of the, of the interview, he agreed to take Mike Meese and Larry Taylor, Taylor down there. Uh, at, simultaneously, I was at Petaluma PD amassing another large contingent of ev- evidence recovery uh, folks, security folks. Um, resources to, to go to this new crime scene to process what we felt would probably be um, the recovery of Polly Class. And I left Petaluma PD with, with a, a train, if you will, of about 30 cars, and we pulled over at a local winery up there, and um, I grabbed Special Agent Dave Alford, who was an evidence recovery specialist, and I, and I saw in the crowd Sergeant Vale Bellow who was my original partner in this case. I said, come on, Bill, let's go. So the three of us got in, uh, were in my car. We went up to, to Cloverdale. Mike Meese, Taylor, and, and Davis were coming down, and we, we met <clears throat> at Cloverdale just south of town on a frontage road where Davis uh, brought, brought them and uh, said that um, this is where he uh, killed Polly and, and dumped her body. And he went through a story where he, uh, he's driving around with Polly. He says she's in the car. At some point in time, she's, he says she's asleep. And, it's, and, and he ends up at this place in Cloverdale. Again, it's right on the side of 101. <clears throat> and he, he can't figure out what to do. And his, his solution to his problem, he says, well, I can't let her go because I just took her, you know. Um, <clears throat> so I've got to get rid of her. She sa- he says that she asked to get out of the car to go to the bathroom. Uh, she gets out of the car. Uh, he gets out of the car. 
And as she's coming back to the car, he says, uh, that's when he killed her. He says he, he strangled her. Uh, initially said he pulled out a, a cloth, tied it around her neck, um, and then found a small uh, piece of rope and tied that around her, her neck. Cause of death is double strangulation. And and then um, kills her there alongside of the road. Dra- says he dragged her body over to the bu- bramble bushes there in the field and tossed her in the bushes and, and put a piece of plywood over her over her and some other uh, debris that he found nearby and casually went home to his halfway house in San Mateo County. Um, so now we're standing there. Now I have, I have two, I have two mandates for my, my, um, bosses. Uh, one manage this scene and that's, that's easy. I've got all the resources in the world to do that, but I'm also tasked Emily with, getting eyes on the body um, and, and confirm to the command post because they're going to bring Mark and Eve in. Um, they're going to prepare a press release, but they want me to confirm that we found Pauly class. And I told them, yeah, I could do that because I, I felt I knew as much as anybody would know about, you know, a young girl except for parents, you know, I felt I knew everything I needed to know about polyclass. And I naively said, yes, I could do that. So I asked Dave Alford to follow me out into the field. We um, came up on the, on the board, just as uh, Davis uh, described. Um, I asked Dave to give me some light. I, I bent down, gently raised the corner of the board enough to see that underneath there was a body. Um, there was a body uh, of, of significant uh, decomposition. I could not tell if it was a, a boy or a girl. I knew it wasn't a huge adult. And I knew it wasn't an infant, but, you know, um, I couldn't distinguish clothing uh, or anything that would tell me who we had there. <clears throat> so I, Carefully lowered that board. We walked back out, back out the way we came in, and uh, that's when I told Taylor uh, and Meese to get him to get Davis out of there, and they put him in the car and left. And uh, Vale's standing there next to me, and we're, you know, what do I do? You know, I mean, they 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 want me to confirm, and in my soul and in my heart, I knew that was Polly Class. And, De- and Vale is telling me, it's got to be her, Eddie. It's got to be her, you know, because of what we know at that point in time. And um, I thought about it for a few minutes or for a few moments. And I called and said, we found polyclass. Of course, it was confirmed the next day through dental and other forensic evidence. But, um, you know, we all knew that was her. And in that moment, your your hesitation I would think so much is going through your mind as the trained lead FBI investigator on this case as a father. When you said you'd promised Mark and Eve, that's Polly's mom and dad, um, that you, you know, you would confirm. So it was knowing it was her in your heart, but knowing clinically we had not had proof scientifically that it was indeed Polly. Is that right? 
Yeah, the prudent thing would have been to say something like, um, we have found a body. Um, we will proceed um, as, it, as it is polyclass, but we can't confirm it until we have positive identification through DNA or dental or what have, have you. But, um, but the, um, the, the emotion of, of, of the whole case brought us to that field that night. And there was no other reason to believe that that was, wasn't anybody else other than polyclass out there. What were the next few days like for you, Eddie? Well, I mean, I mean, they were tough. You know, uh, uh, once we secured the scene, um, we spent three days up there uh, processing that scene with with dignity, as if we were walking on hallow ground. Um, I had I had investigators up there uh, breaking down, crying. Uh, I had my I had my my time as well. But we were we were going to process uh, process that scene again with dignity and respect, and 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 to bring Polly home, um, <clears throat> with the idea of also making sure that any evidence you know wouldn't be overlooked. Um, <clears throat> the scene up there was again extraordinary. It was right along 101, and, and of course by by the next day the media was up there and they they lined. Highway 101, probably a mile in each direction, trying to get a shot of what was going on there. But the pedestrian people uh, stopping their cars, standing on the side of the road, praying, um, was a constant flow for for literally two and a half, almost three days. Um, And um, we uh, concluded the processing the scene. People were leaving. We, uh, I asked Val to get some flowers. We put some flowers out on that scene. And I, I believe it was Monday. It was getting dusk towards the end of the day. And um, Val and I stayed. Val and I stayed until it got dark. We were the last two to leave. And we were not, not going to let um, anybody trample that hollow ground. You know, not on that day anyway. Um, and... Um, yeah, I go by. I go. We were up there, but um, I go by often when I can, pay my respects. But uh, it's still, still uh, hollow ground to me. You made a promise to Polly's parents, you know, in the beginning of the yes. investigation that yes. you would you would bring her home. What does it mean to you that you were able to fulfill that? Well, I told Eve on the night of the, uh, the kidnapping that we would do everything humanly possible to bring Polly home. You know, I thought about that promise for almost 30 years. You know, um, I think we did. I certainly didn't bring her home the way we wanted to, but we did. We did find her, and 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 we brought her home. And her father subsequently founded the Polyclass Foundation dedicated to helping other parents mm-hmm. in that tragic, unfathomable situation. And you've been 
um, <laughs> instrumental in amplifying his efforts as well. So yeah. what are your thoughts on um, the good for other families that has come out of such a heartbreaking event? Well, you know, uh, when you when you look at these cases, um, similar cases around the country, you have lots of foundations that kind of pop up and and um, are are advocating one cause or another, um, and then they tend to kind of uh, um, fade, if you will, and disappear. Not this case. You have the Polyclassic Foundation that is as strong and robust today as it was in those early days back in Petaluma, back mm-hmm. in Petaluma in 1993. Um, uh, Mark Class has his founda- foundation, uh, Mark Class uh, uh, Kids Foundation, and there's the Polyclass Foundation. Both of them are deeply involved in child safety programs. Uh, they have educational programs. They assist uh, law enforcement agencies in distributing uh, flyers, and um, uh, they have police training programs as well. And um, and you and you and you question why they're still around when many others that aren't. And it's still this case just still resonates with people not only in this country but around the world. And I've I've been in places like. Iraq and Algeria and Macedonia, and they know this case because they study the polyclass case as one as an example of, of collaboration between agencies and good investigative work um, and case management and all the all the good things that came out of this case um, are 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 uh, examples you know for other people to follow um, and. Um, you know, I don't. I can never be in Mark's shoes, but you know, Mark has found a way to, to you know, keep Paulie's name alive. You know, and um, and um, I recognize that. And what was your relationship like during the sixty-day <laughs> investigative yeah, period yeah. with Mark and and Eve? Well, Mark will tell you. Mark will tell you that. Um, you know, Mark was obviously uh, like any parent, not knowing how to deal with such a tragic event um and mark would be um be very pleasant very uh cooperative uh in some moments but also would be uh angered and frustrated because you know we had no progress in the case and we were no closer to finding Polly. and sometimes those encounters were uh less pleasant he'll tell you at one point in time he came to the pd and um, he was almost non-coherent uh, due to his anger and frustration. And um, I grabbed him. I literally grabbed him by his shirt and and um, said, you've got to be strong, Mark, not for yourself, but you've got to be strong for Polly. She needs you now more than ever. And, and you've got to stay focused on this thing. And he'll tell you that was a moment that 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 changed him. And um, and um, from that point on, he was, I think, uh, uh, more collaborative, you know, and, and and easier to work with because, you know, he understood that he had to be strong for Pauly. But our relationship continues today, you know, and um, and I think we'll have a chance to collaborate on some other things here in the future. Uh, he's invited me to. And so, um, yeah, I look forward to working with them. Yeah. 
I look forward to seeing um, the continued good works and uh, good effect that both of you have on yeah. on families grieving and yeah. otherwise. Um, yeah. Going back to Richard Allen Davis, and I want to make sure that we all understand Highway 101 is a corridor that um, runs through California close to the you know, it's in the Bay Area, um, but it's close to the coast and it runs through all of these counties we've been mentioning. So, Eddie, walk us through going back to Richard Allen Davis and his motive and how he was able to see Polly and identify her. Um, he was essentially in, in you know, he, his halfway house was in was south of San Francisco, but he drove yes. along this corridor. <laughs> his sister lived north of Petaluma. So it's essentially he's going in a, in a north-south line often. Um, tell us about how that played into him identifying Polly and her home and a park in Petaluma that he used to frequent. Well, uh, and and his mother lived in Petaluma. Uh, So uh, that gave him reason to be in Petaluma. And he he admitted that he was in Petaluma that night to look for his mother to try to um, seek some help. Um, But we have witnesses that place him in in the neighborhood days and weeks before the kidnapping. Richard Allen Davis is categorized as a sexual sadist. And that's kind of like the Jeffrey Dahmer, Ted Bundy kind of offender, the worst of the worst. And um, um, our theory is that in those visits to Pataloma, possibly to find his mother, um, he ends up over in that neighborhood of, of Paulie's. There are two small parks it's a ideal place for somebody like him to hang out, drink some beer. He said he bought marijuana that night. And from those two parks, you could see Polly's house and observe. And so more than likely, he saw Polly in and around her house there in Petaluma and associated this young gal living in that house. That basically triggers his fantasy, uh, his sexual sadism. And then on the night of the kidnapping, he's clearly has the house under surveillance because he sees Kate and Jillian coming and going. And he sees um, um, Jillian's mother leave, thinking that that's the mother. And now he thinks Polly and her friends are in there alone. And, mm-hmm. and that's when he goes into the house. It's only 1030 at night. You know, it's not terribly late. The lights are on. People are out in the neighborhood. He's seen going into the house by by Sean Bush, who lives in the cottage next door. So it's very bold behavior. Why? Because he's trying to fulfill his fantasy. And um, um, yeah, I mean, uh, he's he's definitely been into the neighborhood before. And so, um, at what point in time uh, does he? Um, uh, conduct himself, you know, with overt acts. Well, it's probably the night of the kidnapping when he comes prepared. He has the ligatures ready and he's ready to go in and take the girl who lives there. That's why he asked who lives here because he wants the girl that lives there because he's seen her before. And that's the girl he takes. And it's my understanding, Eddie, that these um, the sexual deviants, especially the sexual sadist, the fantasy is it's difficult for us rational people to understand the level of commitment to these fantasies when the execution is triggered. That, yeah. to your point, um, there is nothing that these monsters will stop at to fulfill that fantasy. That is why 
they will murder people in the way, any type of obstruction to the fulfillment of their plan. They have no problem eliminating that that temporary obstruction. So having that kit ready, he essentially yep. had the tools needed to execute this fantasy. Um, and the the determination is, again, like an understatement of, of him. Yep. Doing exactly. This. I mean, there were plenty of... Um uh, roadblocks, if you will, or or uh, uh, prohibitors that would stop the normal offender. Uh, uh, house lit up. Um, two or three girls in the house because he said he heard noises. A uh, a lively neighborhood. Walking down the driveway, walking right in front of Sean Bush's door, they saw each other. Those would normally stop the normal offender. It didn't stop him. You know, because he was dedicated to his fantasy. He was dedicated to grabbing the girl that lived there and fulfilling his sexual fantasy. And can you share with listeners um, the reason why Sean, what, they saw each other and that Sean didn't stop him because, yeah. share with us why. Yeah, uh, Sean, Sean will tell you that um, uh, he was in a, in a cottage uh, at the end of the driveway of Polly's house. And it looked right out onto the driveway. And he'll tell you that at, at about 1030, he's, while he's sitting just inside the door, watching a movie, the door's wide open because it's a warm October evening. Mm. He catches a movement out of his eye. He looks down the driveway and he sees a figure of a man walking down the driveway right towards his cottage. Um, this, this man turns, walks right in front of his open door. He had to know people were in there because they looked at each other. They were only a few feet away. Sean watches him go back behind the house, up on the porch, open the back door, and go in the house. So <clears throat> you go, Sean, I mean, why didn't you say something? Why didn't you do something? He said, what do you mean? He said, the guy did not act suspiciously at all. He acted like he knew exactly where he was going. He had to know I was there. It did not arouse one shard of suspicion on my part because he just didn't act like it he just walked down the driveway up on the back porch and went into the house i thought i thought he was a relative or you know was it was a guest at the house and so um you know you, you can understand that you know if you don't act suspiciously well why is he not acting suspiciously you know it's just bold behavior that's mm. he's acting out his fantasy right I've been there as well, Eddie, and and you know I remember um, remarking and thinking how the the park is is that sweet little you know downtown um, neighborhood park is kitty corner from Polly's yes. house. Yes. So it is so upon being there physically, it is so easy to appreciate how a monster like Richard Allen Davis could spend hours in the park you know, not well lit. He could hide in a tree shadow looking at Polly's house, seeing the comings and goings and crafting and developing this fantasy that he ultimately laid out. There was, there was quite a, it was a perfect way essentially from just watch the house and stalk her, which, you know, for them, it's research. It's, it's stalking. We know it's stalking. Yes. Um, and I want to touch on two legal ramifications that this case helped change in, in California anyway, forever. So, Eddie, you mentioned in the beginning that the APB went out on Channel 1 and the sheriffs were on a different channel. And 
now from that there became there there arose a centralized 911 dispatch system can you tell us about that effect sure sure so every uh, uh, a lot of police departments and certainly a lot of sheriff's departments back in those days would have a, uh, a dispatch main and that, that would go out to the deputies out on patrol uh, in the general area um, of, of the sheriff's office. And, and a lot of these uh, departments would have satellite offices um, out in remote areas of the county uh, where two or three deputies would be operating under a different channel because they didn't want to be interfered with all the traffic on, on the main channel. And that was exactly uh, the, uh, the SOP, the, the, the standard protocol back then. And so uh, this case kind of changed that where um, police departments and sheriff's offices changed across the country where they have a central dispatch. And if they don't have a central dispatch, those bolos and announcements and, and be on the lookout for go out over all the channels being operated within that agency um, and, you know, um, allied agencies in the area so that everybody is informed as to what's going on, at least on the significant level, you know, a major homicide, major uh, pursuit, a kidnapping, that sort of thing. And it's just, um, you know, um, allowing all the officers to know what's going on. Um, and if, if Howard and, and uh, Rankin had known about a kidnapping, maybe they would have uh, detained Davis longer, and um, we might have had a different outcome. We don't know. I suspect she was probably dead during that encounter because there's no reason why she wouldn't come down that that hillside, that embankment, just a few feet away, knowing that there were police right down there. There's no explanation uh, for that other than if she was incapacitated up there on the hillside, already already been assaulted and murdered. I'm I'm simply an observer. I agree with you because from the report, Richard Allen Davis at the time, he was um, perceived as sweaty, uh, right there. His hair was tousled. Um, and he had debris in his hair and his clothing. Yeah. Yep. yep. Indications that he was probably rolling around with her up there uh, in the assault. Um, and um, that's supported by the ground itself, uh, visibly disturbed. And his sweatshirt's up there, the condom, the condom wrapper. And all those things are up there as well. So um, that's clearly where the assault occurred. And, you know, it goes back to that level of undeterred fulfillment that we're talking about when dealing with a sexual sadist where yeah. there there would there's no reason to expect a hesitation on his part upon getting right. to his designated place of sexual gratification, that that would occur immediately. Um, and certainly if he was, as they found him, he was outstanding by the car, it meant that um, his he had been fulfilled in, in that deviant way. Um, as well as uh, he, he, he says that he waited uh, 30 to 45 minutes to go back. You know, if she's sitting up on that hillside, um, you know, unmolested and, and aware um, in that time, she probably would have walked up the driveway to Dana Jaffe's house. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, I believe yes, that she was already, she had already been raped and strangled and murdered um, and that there was nothing those deputies could have done that night upon encountering him that would have saved her life. It just simply would have brought closure to the family right. sooner. Right. Um, and, those, and those are the conclusions that the uh, jury made uh, as well in this case. That we, you know, we presented all the forensic evidence. We 
presented the timeline. We presented the, his statement, obviously. And, um, you know, the jury came to that same conclusion as well. And I want to talk about that for a moment, Eddie. So sure. the second the second legal ramification that occurred here was that this is one of the high profile cases that led to the enactment of the three strikes law in California. As yes. you mentioned, Richard Allen Davis was a recidivist. He was a, a repeat offender um, yep. and he had a, a, an arrest and conviction record spanning to over 20 years prior to kidnapping and murder, murdering Polly Klaas including for assault and kidnapping of women. And so under the now three strikes law, when enforced, a monster like him would not have been out on parole to be able to kidnap and and murder Polly. So, but for the three strikes law, um, you know, now or the lack thereof at the time, then he was able able to do that. And I think it really garnered, there was massive support for that. This was a, a yes. perfect illustration that those deviants and those recidivists don't stop reoffending unless there is a deterrent, which means keeping them off the street. The second that they are free, they will engage in that deterrent behavior. And I think the public saw that during the trial um, at which you testified. He was charged with, obviously, um, first degree murder and kidnapping, but there were four special circumstances that led to his ultimate being levied um, the death penalty, robbery, burglary, kidnapping, and attempted lewd act on a child. Um, And he taunted Mark and Eve. So can you, can you explain for a little bit, you know, tell us about the, Mm -hmm. the horrible additional um, trauma that he put the family through and he put law enforcement through during the trial? Um. Of course, you know, uh, uh, Eve was uh, very, um, um, I don't want to say recluse, but she was um, uh, quiet throughout throughout this, uh, did not offer herself to very many uh, media interviews, if any at all. But Mark was very vocal uh, mm-hmm. throughout the, the case, throughout the uh, trial. Um, and... Um, as any parent has a right to be in, in such a case. But Richard Allen Davis uh, t- uh, took that as an opportunity to uh, make uh, comments that he knew would infuriate Mark, um, especially towards the end of the trial. And, oh, by the way, um, um, at the conclusion of the investigation, um, which was uh, early December, 1993. And without my knowing, um, the DA, uh, Mike Mullins, called the director of the FBI and thanked him for the Bureau's participation in the investigation. And he also requested uh, Director Free that I be assigned to his prosecution team. And of course, that was granted. So I, I sat on this case from the night of the kidnapping until three years later when we got our conviction. Uh, this was my only case I worked for for three years, so I so I had a pretty much an inside view of this um, death penalty case. But at the end of a uh, end of the testimony, Richard Allen Davis was afforded the opportunity to speak before the court, and he and he did. <clears throat> um, it was more or less a rambling statement, uh, but at the end he turned and he said, "Oh." And when I was taking Polly up on the hillside there on Pythian Road, she turned to me and said, please don't do me like my dad, Ugh. which was a horrible, horrible um, 
malicious comment, uh, only to you know to inflict pain and and hurt on on Mark Laskas. Mark was a loving, caring father, um, um, and um, that was just meant to uh, uh, victimize him again. And it just demonstrates the monster we, we were dealing with. And um, I remember the judge, um, Hastings, basically at the um, conclusion of the case and affirming the death penalty verdict, uh, he, he told Richard Allen Davis that he had made it easy for this court to confirm the death penalty and, uh, and, and rendered it so. <clears throat> and Richard Allen Davis also, um, you know, he, he um, engaged in a lewd gesture toward, mm-hmm. yeah. he, he flipped he flipped the bird um, in court toward Mark. Uh, and- yeah, uh, both hands, both hands, he turned around and, and flipped the bird. I think it was, it was, it was his disdain for the system. I got to tell you, you know, I, I sat on this case, the, um, this death penalty case, from day one until the very last day. We have the very best legal system in the world because I have seen it. I've seen it at work. We have the best police officers in the world. I know that because I've been around the world and I've seen policing in other places. And the United States, and especially California, has the best police officers in the world. We have the best system. Can we get better, Emily? Yes. And we always strive to get better. And uh, a a guy like Richard Allen Davis, who has had a lifetime of opportunity to correct himself, to take vocational training, to, you know, get counseling and to get help. And at each time in his life, which are multiple he rejects it, goes out and reoffends, and for him to show disdain for the system that has spent countless, uh, oper- you know, chances to to help him, and, and for him to to reject it the way he did at that trial again just shows the um, the kind of again the kind of monster that he really is. That same system that protected him at all costs through your painstaking description of the the procedure you all followed to ensure that his rights were protected. This is a system that that centers the defendant in most ways in a jury trial, especially in a capital punishment trial. I agree with you wholeheartedly. His disdain for that system that has only propped him up is horrifying. And I want to bring up something else that has been particularly troubling to me following that trial which is um and it and also involves him his taunting but the the governor of California issued a moratorium on the death yes. penalty there and yes. he did so um he, he indicated that he had met with victims families mark class has been vocal that he was not ever contacted by the governor or his office and it felt like you know not this that, is not his that I'm yeah, exactly. And I don't want to par- like, but to paraphrase, it is his story to share, but that he felt blindsided and that this is a monster who told the father of his 12 year old murdered victim that he masturbates to her photo in prison on death row there in San Quentin um, that is now stayed at the hands of a politician who did not take it upon himself to communicate with Polly's father or mother. And I find that... Um, I find that heartbreaking. 
Yeah, you know, we, we tend to forget why we have these um, cases. We tend to forget the, uh, the victims, the victims' families, and it seems even more so today where the, the weight seems to be on the offender and not on, on the victim's rights and um, um, the harm that's been done by some of, the, some of these offenders. Um, I, I, I pray, I think we all pray that um, the system will eventually come to its senses and, and realize that, that uh, people like Richard Allen Davis receive the sentences that they deserve through a process that um, ensures that that's the proper decision made by a jury and, and the courts in the face of all other, you know, mitigating uh, information or circumstances, um, that they still come to these decisions for for a reason, because it's the right decision. Um, you know, um, but, um, you know, we're stuck in a political environment right now that, you know, doesn't see things in terms of, you know, through the victim's eyes, through the community's eyes. Um, but... Um, Maybe we'll come back. I have a question about the charges. So obviously he was charged with first degree murder and convicted as such. And we have those special circumstances. We've articulated the four special circumstances. And those are in part what led to him being um, death penalty eligible, right? Are these these enhancements essentially. Um, And my question is, why the attempted lewd act? It obviously doesn't matter. He 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 still got the death penalty and it murders much worse. But why, given the circumstantial evidence that was so strong, was it because yeah. her poor body was in such a state of decomposition that we weren't able to prove that? Yeah, there was there, were, there was a burden of proof there that we just uh, quite, uh, quite reach um, the, uh, the advanced uh, decomposition of her body, even though the skirt was upside down and inverted and her clothes indicated that there was probably some sort of sexual assault. Um uh, we didn't find any um, uh, DNA evidence um, that would suggest that he sexually assaulted her, though he, he had a condom. You know, so what I was going to say was it, find it. Could we? Was there any type of attempted collection from the condom? Yes, at all, you know, it- you know. I'll, I'll tell you, Emily. I thought I hit a home run in the World Series when I was told there was a condom up, up there. The, the logical thought would be there would be plenty or ample DNA on that, although it's been sitting out in the woods for sixty days. And the DNA uh, was gone, but um, um, the uh, decision by the by the DA, and especially the DA prosecuting the case, Greg Jacobs, and and we talked about this at length, uh, what to charge him with, and he, he felt that um, if we can get the special circumstances in, and, and the jury would would find it a, a better way. To, to find true on those special circumstances than to try to reach a higher burden of proof and not have the actual evidence, you know, would endanger that particular uh, special circumstance charge. I don't think there's a, a person in the world when they really look at this case and know all of the evidence and the facts, I don't believe that she wasn't sexually assaulted up there on, on Pythian Road. There's just no other explanation for the, for the evidence um, being up there. But, um, Proving that in court uh, is another story. So, in my opinion, it was properly charged, and 
and he was found guilty on all on all the charges that we brought. How have you been changed by this case? Well, you know, I've told you it before. You know, it's it. it you know, I, I still live here in Sonoma County. I, I still present this case. I, I was just down in L.A. Uh, um, presented it twice back to back to LAPD and some of the officers down there. Um, I, there isn't a month that, or a couple of weeks that go by that I don't get a call or in a classroom and talking about this case. I live here, Emily. I, I drive by these locations. Um, yeah, there, there, there isn't a day that, that in my life that doesn't go by where there's a thought about polyclass or some aspect of the case or about Mark. And I think about Eve um, often, you know, what, what she continues to endure. But, um, yeah, it's changed me and a lot of a lot of my colleagues. You know, I told you there were, there were a lot of FBI agents that cried in this case, you know, out there because, you know, we were we were a hundred percent in, you know, and um, you can't work a case like this and be devoted to finding a twelve-year-old that's lost out there without it affecting you when you you can't bring her home the way you want to. What is your final message for those who have joined us today? Well, I guess my my message is there are countless dedicated men and women in the criminal justice system, from the uniform officers to prosecutors, to advocates, um, to courts. Um, And it's it's a system that is there to protect you um, and to protect victims' rights. Um, I think we've... um, we have wandered a little bit here recently, um, but it doesn't change the dedication of the men and women who put on their uniform every day uh, and try to do the right thing for the right reasons. And and, and I saw that in this case. Uh, everything we did was for the, the right reason, you know, to bring polyclass home. And that's what men and women in law enforcement do every day, you know, whether it's to, you know, help a, help a 12-year-old find her bike or help try to find a, you know, a kidnap victim, you know, that's what they do every day. And I want people to realize that, that, uh, you know, you have professionals out there and um, let's give them a break. Eddie Fryer, it's such an honor to have you here with me today. It's such an honor to call (laughs) you my friend. Thank you for your service. You have such a, a selfless servant's heart, Eddie, and it's It is so obvious, you know, the second that someone has the honor of spending time with you and this case and the dedication that you had for it and that you've had for it in the 30 years since, um, it's, it's beautiful to witness. And I, I've, I'm humbled and honored to be a witness for it, Eddie. You, you changed lives. I think so many more lives than you'll ever know. So God bless you and thank you for all that you did to bring Polly home and for all that you've done every day since then. Thanks for the opportunity, Emily. Anytime. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. 